Welcome to the Rise of the Challenge podcast. Join me today. He's an entrepreneur, speaker, coach, author, and former collegiate athlete. It's Coach Cameron Campbell. How are you doing today, Cameron? Alex, I'm glad to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm excited to learn more about you and your Rise to the Challenge. So what we do first is we go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Yeah, so, so I was born in a very small town in North Louisiana, but I grew up really here in Houston. Um, I was forced to grow up really fast and not from a, you know, a, a place from, from a negative position, but uh, I grew up on, on the south side of town, um, was, I guess, technically the wrong side of the tracks. I think like most people, you don't really understand what that means until you're like an adult, <laughs> right? And so so my parents did kind of the Fresh Prince thing with me and, you know, moved, we moved out to the suburbs um, when I was like in the third grade. And, you know, that, that had a pretty... Pro- profound impact on me. I think that, you know, in the, I guess, mid nineties, uh, to understand what race was like, and I was the only black kid in my school for a number of years, um, or in my class, I should say, for a number of years and kind of being, you know, the odd man from that perspective, but just understanding that where our, our country and climate was with race, um, and still trying to figure some things out. But, you know, yeah, so that's kind of me in a nutshell. Um, you know, kind of as our, our conversation talked about, you know, I look back now and some of those like early memories really do shape, I think, who who I am today. And I'm still kind of uncovering, uncovering those sometimes. You talked about being the only person or the outsider at your school. Was it hard for you to make friends or interact with people because maybe you had a fear of judgment that was going to happen with the other kids? Yeah, so I think I, my parents were were very liberal or are very liberal. Um, they, If they were a little bit older, they would have been hippies, <laughs> right? And so, you know, I grew up in a very inclusive, you know, love people, give people trust first um, environment. And, you know, for the most part, uh, that was reciprocated. I think that the racial thing that that happens in a lot of suburbs and a lot of, honestly, entry-level suburbs, right? So it's like middle-class white families who are able to disassociate themselves from a majority of like a big city, right? Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I'm the king of the hill on this itty bit little hill. You know, it becomes less about race, I think, and really more about class. And I think that for, you know, kids especially, kids understand class less, have a lesser understanding of class, but can understand race easier. And so I think a lot of some of what I experienced, and I don't want to make it sound like, you know, it, it was a daily day out basis, but I mean, I think some of the things that I was called, you know, in the nineties, you know, folks in the sixties fought for that not to happen. But a lot of it, I think, you know, as I flash back, really was about classism that maybe just had racism draped over the top, but it was really Stephen classism. Growing up, did you have any motivations or inspirations in your life? 
Yeah. So, so my grandfather, I called him my papa. He, he lived with us, you know, all in about that same time window, my, his wife, my grandmother passed away and, you know, my parents moved him in with us. And, you know, he was the closest to what I'd say like a perfect man was understanding, obviously there was no perfect people, but you know, my mom was great. My dad was great. But, you know, my papa really showed me what love is. And he was, you know, again, like went through the Great Depression, World War. Like he, he was not, you know, he didn't use the word love like really ever, <laughs> but he displayed it so much. And so I say he was a role model for me. And as far as, you know, as far as experiences, um, my mom growing up, uh, had a part of her life, her window, where she had like extreme back pain and back discomfort. And it forced me to grow up like very young. And so, you know, again, all in that same kind of third grade, fourth grade window, you know, I had to figure out how to cut the grass and cook and make groceries and like go to the grocery store and, you know, budget. And so like literally, you know, here's, $17 cash, go buy $17 worth of groceries, right? And so like walking into the grocery store, um, you know, without a calculator, which kind of is why I'm so good at like quick math now, but it's like, you know, yeah, you can't go up there with, with $18 worth of groceries, you're going to get embarrassed, right? And so um, what I think a lot of adults and parents would frame as hardship was really just teaching me life at an early lesson. And that's just life. There's gonna be some times where, you know, it may not be 17 bucks, but you've got a limited budget and you've got to make that budget stretch. You've got to figure that skill out. And so um, even in conversations with my parents now, you know, I think that sometimes they have like an apologetic disposition for, you know, just things that happen in life or just like even some of those examples I shared and, you know, I've always been like, like, no, I needed that. Like that gave me such a leverage heads up. And again, there was so much love in our home. And my father is a point of reference. Like my father was, um, I learned my work ethic like from him, right? And so the times that he was not in my life, he was in our home. He was just, you know, gone to work by the time I woke up and I was asleep by the time he got home, right? So so he he was in my life for sure, just with my mom, with her physical ailment, she was, you know, just physically there when I got home from work or school, when I came home from school. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think those misfortunes, you know, became my superpower, but more importantly, you know, I, I had a great childhood. I mean, I remember like my first BB gun and my first like go-kart and all those like cool things that like little boys love, but you know, more than those things, like my parents gave me responsibility at a young age. And, you know, it is for me, the gift that keeps giving. I think when you were talking about growing up very quickly, I kind of went through similar things with my uh, dad where I was taking care of him and helping out around the house, going to the store and everything. And I think kind of made me become a better person where I appreciated the things that I had. I would appreciate the things that I do where when now I'm by myself living in a house, I'm able to figure out those kind of things already. Would you say that growing up fast for you, it helps you now what you're doing, where you can be able to stick with the budget, be able to do daily tasks around your house? 
Yeah. So, so what it what it does for guys like you and I is like that is my norm, right? So, so if I, as an example, you know, you've got your family operational budgets. So let's just say, you know, three hundred bucks a month on dining out, for example, right? So you understand before date night that there's seventy five bucks left in the budget for dining out. So seventy five dollars for a guy like you and I is a non-negotiable number. So, you know, if with the tip you're at 78, like nothing happens, like you go $3 over and, you know, like, you know, you save a few bucks on your electric, right? So like in the grand scheme of your budget, there's yeah. you know, nothing wrong. But for a guy like you and I, it's like, no, there's no going over yeah. $75, right? So, so maybe if you want drinks tonight, it's Chili's, right? <laughs> so we can have drinks too. But, and, and you know, I think, and, and the reason I'm so glad you brought that up is throughout relationships in my life um, and a number of different types of relationships, you know what you know and you're wired the way you're wired and people who, it takes years for people to understand and unpack your wiring. And so I'm very much like that with time and I'm o- I've only recently um, began to loosen, you know, time is a thing for me that is an anxiety builder. And I've been able to use it kind of as a leverage, the opposite side to like maximize things. And like the course we'll talk about just kind of how you make the most out of your minutes and your hours. But there was a time I remember so distinctly, I was very young and I was uh, staying with my my grandmother on the other side uh, while my parents were out of town visiting family. And there was a hurricane that my parents had to drive through, right? So again, this is the early 90s. So you're getting news like every hour. There isn't like every five minutes, there's an app and here's where you are, GPS. And so um, my parents promised me that they would call like every couple of hours, just like, hey, you know, we're making progress. Here's a milestone we're at. And so my parents pulled over to like let the storm pass, which is the right thing to do. But they also didn't stop and call. And so they end up taking like two extra hours, which for me felt like a lifetime, especially when, you know, you're watching the news and it's like, oh, there's a roof and there's a cow. And, you know, it's like, that's a path that, you know, your parents are driving through. Um, By the time they did get to like a safe place to call, I was just like so tightly wound. And I kind of began to clutch on to to time. like I, I I started wearing a watch like in the second grade, <laughs> like, like I just you know like classes over now the bell ring got it right just like time and you know for the most part like I said I've been able to like leverage maximizing time you know to as a strength as a superpower right so you can get more out of your day if you squeeze, but the other side of you know still learning myself is there's so much. Um, anxiety, like like the, the, the downside of maximizing time is it emits a, a pollution and that pollution is or can be anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, now like I'm finally getting to a point to where I'll loosen up or, you know, like if I've got an appointment across town that'll take 45 minutes, I would typically leave like, you know, hour early or hour 15 early, even though at the worst it would take, you know, 45 minutes. And then I like trick my, I do things like mind tricks. Like like I actually had this podcast on our show timing on for an hour early because I always set things an hour and 10 minutes early. And it just, it just creates like this like unnecessary mind fog. 
that I'm finally getting to a place of learning myself. And it's like, no, just like, let it go. And, you know, if the show before runs over three minutes over, then just kind of send them a note and apologize. But, you know, in the past, I would just like block off all these big windows and, you know, be waiting for you for 55 minutes, but at least I wouldn't be late. I totally can understand the time management part. I'm the same way. If that takes me 45 minutes, I'm leaving an hour early. Just because you never know what can happen. Like an accident could be on the road or traffic. So I totally understand because my family would say the same thing. Alex, you need to stop freaking out about it. But it's like, that's just me. I mean, my friends understand it, but they deal with it. They don't have, they have no problem because they're like, oh, we're early. That's fine. Well, and, and, and again, it's like, but it's all you know, right? So it's like so interwoven into who you are and your character that it became a thing for me. Like, I would say to people like very early, like in my professional career, like if I'm, on, if I'm not on time, like send somebody because I'm probably not, I'm, you know, I'm in a record something like I, I don't show up late. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the one or two times that you do show up late, um, you know, because of things you can't control, there will be so much guilt on my behalf because I will be in this conflict of my character. Like I'm the guy who shows up 15 minutes early, not to, you know, leverage a power play at the table, you know, for the meeting, but just to be able to set the table for the way the meeting is going to go. Now I'm kind of in a shell and, you know, maybe a bit insecure, like not fully in my flow because I'm two minutes late and like what, what, what happened in conversation or what small talk was had or, you know, just like I've missed these opportunities. But the fact of the matter is like, if you live long enough, you know, things happen, like be respectful of people's time. Yes. But you know, it's like the guy who's, you know, a minute later, the or the second guy to the, into the, the boardroom for a meeting, you know, isn't missing anything. That's just stuff inside of me that I've got to begin to let go. So what was that dream job that you were going for or wanting growing up? Alex, if I told you, so <laughs> my dream, my dream was to be a senator. Um, I always understood that giving and serving was a big part of who I am. I understood that, you know, those are two of my spiritual gifts. I understood that, um, I understood that I prepared myself really most of my life to be able to stand or withstand a lot of the public criticism that comes with politics and, you know, making good choices, like from a very young age, like I I went to college and school well before social media, but, you know, like I carried myself even then, like as if, you know, the the person at that party could never come back and say, yeah, he was up there like going crazy. Right. And so I just always tempered myself, I'd say, um, for the public eye. Uh, and not from an ego standpoint, but just like the last thing you want is to have a family and, you know, and to get to a point of success and be like, well, yeah, but then 20 years ago, you like jumped off a pool, you know what I mean? Like, like that. So um, that, that was my, my dream job. And I'd say that that job dream shattered, I guess, or, or the bubble popped while I was in college. So I was a political science major and I got a C in like intro poli sci. And so like my advisor calls me and she's like, hey bro, like this is a class you should ace (laughs) if this is like where you want your career to go. Um, And she was, I'd say, um, you know, each branch of the legal system has their own strengths and weaknesses, but the judicial branch 
you know, especially with, you know, you know, um, Ruth Ginsburg passing away, there, there is a level of truth and objectivity that is required for that branch. And she brought that level of tone and conversation. So she said to me, you know, listen, I'm glad you got a great heart and you, know, you enjoy giving and, and want to make an impact in your community and, and potentially the world and the country and your state. But you need to understand that if you take this, this path, this is not squash buckling to make the world a better place. This is calculated, it's consistent. You're going to need to prepare to go to law school. Um, and if you don't go that route, not to say you can't still be in politics or make an impact, it's just that is the non-traditional route, which means it's going to be a lot more roadblocks to get to what you want to get to. So with that being said, reflect on that and come back and see me in a day or two. Um, so I changed my major to public speaking. <laughs> Definitely two different areas, right? Yeah. So with public speaking, did you enjoy doing that kind of stuff or was it just, it was maybe available and the thing that came upon my mind at that moment? I, I gotta be honest, Alex. Like I, I went through, so I remember like it was like a Tuesday, it was midweek. And so I changed my major on a Friday. So like midweek, I had this conversation with this counselor and she gave me the thick, you remember the course catalog? You remember like, yeah. like two inch like binder, right? So I'm flipping through it and it's like, okay, I know, I know the areas of my skill set where I am not, where I'm weak, right? So like, deep deep math deep deep science like we gonna we can rip those pages out right? so while i do i'm a curious person all that kind of stuff like you know i'm not squinting in front of a a, a microscope for like that's not my career path um so that gets to communications right and so it's like you know tv radio and even that it's like what does tv mean right so it's like it's like courses so then there's a course on public speaking and i'm like wait you can major in this like like being a well, you know, polished, finished speaker. Oh yeah, Tommy, this is it right here. <laughs> so I was very fortunate to like find what almost feels like a hack. It almost feels like you're stealing, right? So so it's no different from, you know, the really really obscure tech hacker high school kid understanding that like yes, IT is a major, but like natural science and mathematics is a more original Nate like like you know, major for IT, like, yes, you know, I like computers, but I'm actually drawn to the science and the math, right? So that's kind of what it was for me being able to, to major in communications. Like, yes, this is naturally a skill to me. And you get a little older and you hear that, you know, like, uh, like speaking is people's number one fear, or number two fear behind death is speaking or public speaking. And it's like, yeah, I, I'm a, again, a, a compassionate person. I, I mean, I can't, like, I, I don't have, I've had stage fright twice as a speaker. Once was speaking in front of um, a group of colleagues, which obviously peer to peer has always been intimidating. But added on top of that, I was it was a speaking, it was a coaching convention, and two of my coaching mentors, like I mean, these guys are like Texas legends. Both of them are in the Texas High School Coaches Hall of Fame. Were in the room. And it's like, you know, that one gave me a bit of, of stage fright. And then I spoke in front of 4,000 high school freshmen. And 
I was not intimidated. It wasn't stage fright. It was more like, you know, I, it's what I imagine like a NWA concert, like in the early nineties, like what happens if this room gets out of control? Like there's <laughs> 4,000 of them and just one of me. And so, you know, those are the two moments and from all the stages and all the, you know, live activations I've done. I mean, there's never been a fear of performance. In fact, you know, I feel sometimes never more liberated than, than standing on the stage with a microphone in my hand. So sports played a huge impact in your life. As a former collegiate athlete, how did that come about for you? And what was the biggest thing you learned about yourself during that time? You know, the biggest thing I learned about myself during my playing days was, you know, so the first thing kind of going back to performance is if you can travel to Georgia and play in front of 110,000 people booing you or travel to LSU or travel to Texas or uh, play at West Point at, you know, Army the year of 9-11, right? So, like, if you can perform um, in front of adversity, Right. So not only an adversary on the other side of the line of scrimmage, but, you know, piping in like adversity, you can perform anywhere. And so I think that, you know, what, what athletics taught me is uh, athletics is an external educational system. Right. And so when you fail in life as a student, you know, your teacher hands you over your spelling paper. I, was, I used to be like a really bad speller, poor speller. And so I remember like getting spelling tests and the teacher would like cuff the paper over, like to hand you like a failing grade, you know, nobody knew that grade, but you and the teacher, mm -hmm. right. But athletics, when you fail, you fail in front of a hundred thousand people. Right. And so if I can fail in front of all these people, that means that I, that I have the ability to succeed in front of so many more people. So after college, what was your next path? So after college, um, I did, so as a step back, I was a guy who always, again, like capitalized, right? So like my goal was never necessarily to play in the NFL. Mm -hmm. My goal was how many doors can the University of Houston open for me? And so there are a lot of people like in, you know, LA or, 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 or New York who are like, you know, from that area and like never leave. And, you know, while I was being recruited and trying to decide where to go, my thought process was like, this is the fourth biggest city in the nation. I'm from here. You know, why would I begin creating social capital over in an entire different city? Right. So, like, I knew as much as I control that I was going to go to school here the same way that, you know, like, a, a, as an example, like a Michael Bloomberg, right, you're from New York, if, if you can if you can master your city, you're going to be on the big things, right? And I say, you know, you can use Jay-Z, any example, right, of just a person from a major metropolis city. So as I finished school, I began to do internships and, um, you know, the idea of like, let me go to Atlanta or New York or Chicago and start over just never made sense to me. Like, no, I'm going to master, like people are going to know who I am here and then once I master this city or the state, maybe then I'll travel or, or you know, leave or, or set up shop. But yeah, so, so, you know, for me, it was like, where can I set up shop and create um, a name for myself? And this is before, you know, not a brand, not understanding like from a business perspective, but where can I create social capital, um, you know, for myself? And it was always here in Houston. So when I finished school, I worked for the Houston Texans for a number 
um, for a short amount of time and enjoyed it. Um, I started with the equipment room um, internship, which was very humbling. I'm a, I'm a you know humble person myself, but you know I was never the athlete who threw a dirty jockstrap at the equipment guy pushing the cart, right? So you're kind of pushing the cart across the locker room. But there are people who do that, <laughs> right? And so, like, I'm in the Texas locker room. Like, please do not throw that disgusting, like, jockstrap bag, like, like your 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 garment bag, across my head, right? So, um, that was the first experience. And the second one was like, it gave me such a deep level of appreciation of all the mechanics and mach- machines that make a ball game happen. So obviously at the NFL level, but even at the college level, high school level, you know, there are literally guys who spend hours waxing footballs, hours shaping and squeezing and putting air on footballs, hours in folding your your uniform just right, hours, you know, you're in two days and, you know, you've got a seven o'clock lift. Then after a seven o'clock lift, you got a nine o'clock practice, nine o'clock practice, one o'clock film study, all these different things. Every time you go to your locker, there is a steam shirt folded the same way, you know, uh, shoes that are put up the same way, socks inside of that. So, so like the, the science of not just logistics, but, you know, it takes literally an orchestra for those 53 guys to, to strap up every day. And it gave me such an appreciation of, of, the, of the background of what it takes for that to happen. I think this is something like new that I just learned because we, we, we don't think about that stuff as fans in a way. We kind of don't know what happens really behind the scene. But now hearing your story, it's kind of like more appreciative for the other people besides the main players. I mean, you can think about it with any sport. There's always that clubhouse manager or the equipment manager that basically helps them get prepared. They have all their stuff ready to go so that they can play at their peak level. So it's kind of something, I just learned something new about the whole NFL industry and that part. Yeah, and you know, it's really, it's, it's pro sports. And so you think about like baseball, right? And so uh, in when you're in your, like your fresh out of school interning kind of window, you'll get guys who have like interned in the NFL or, or in NHL or like Major League Baseball that come from MLS or NBA. And so you hear these stories, right? So you begin to hear these stories of like equipment guys in baseball, so, so first off, baseball is such a everyday guy sport mm-hmm. that not only do they play, you're playing almost every day, and the days you aren't playing, you're either traveling or practicing, well, the logistics of it's game day every day, right? And so, you know, the logistics of, you know, getting a roster ready, but then the added part of that is baseball is one of the few sports in our culture where like the rituals go crazy. So like, you know, there's a batter who's, you know, finally batting 330 and he looked down and there was like a piece of clay in his sock. Well, he, that guy needs a clay, a piece of clay in his sock every, you know, right? So it's like these weird like nuances and you've got to get every single guy's thing right. Um, and I think that, you know, where, you know, baseball is a little different from basketball and football as far as our pro major sports, you know, baseball has that like you know i need a piece of like laffy taffy gum in the upper right hand piece of my locker when i'm on the road you know what i mean it's like like those like weird nuances and that's just like the the guy on the roster now you're talking about like the all-star guys i mean they it, not that they're like madonnas but it's like their mentality is that piece of laffy taffy got me there so 
I'm not walking in that locker. I'm not getting dressed until that Laffy Taffy's up there. And again, there's no like, you know, mean spirited stuff behind it, but it's just, you know, again, the, the spot, the root, the routine of playing that sport. Like, no, I, I grab that Laffy Taffy. I text my family. I put my socks on like, like that level of routine, you know, a hundred and something days a year. Yeah. <laughs> So after working with the Houston Texas, did you want to stay in sports or were you wanting to try something different? So I knew that I had going back to, you know, conversations with my papa and just flashing back. And this is about the time that he passed away. Um, I knew that I had an obligation to like the ecosystem as a whole mm -hmm. to give back because I had such good coaches and I had, I had such a rich athletic experience and you get older, you know, kind of, as you're saying, like you, you have more conversations with other people and you realize like, if I've been playing for 10 years and eight of those years, I've had the most amazing coaches. I've had a blast. I just, right. Like, I've been overly blessed when it comes to like that part of my experience. You begin to have conversations with guys and it's like, yeah, I played for eight years and eight of those or 10 of those years, eight of those years sucked because I had terrible coaches, only two. Right. So, it, so I was really drawn to like this gravitas of, and not from an ego standpoint, but like I owe it to overpour in somebody else's cup because I look back and like my cup was really over porn. Like I, I, I did not, the, the only, I can only name a handful of coaches that, you know, so first off my coach sucks is such a cop out thing to say. Right. But like, I can really only point to like one or two seasons, even going back to like middle school where I felt like this person coaching me is either inadequate is not committed to developing me or just isn't very good i i can only say two seasons now i don't mean two years i mean you know basketball season football season track i mean all these different sports i've played i've just i've just had like amazing guys supporting me and so you know you kind of pick yourself up by the bootstraps and figure like how am i going to make a dent in this world and i started by being true to myself and just saying like you know the world I'll figure the world out. The world will figure me out. But let me start in a place where I'm indebted to, and I'm indebted to finding a way to impact, you know, youth athletes and, and, and leaving them better than how I found them. So when you were helping with youth athletes, did you kind of use the skills from previous experiences to help shape to how you were able to use that in your position? Yeah. You know, I, I think so many times, you know, you spend your early twenties, you know, trying to rebel against the things that have been kind of structured in you that typically make the most sense. And you spend, you know, the back end of your 20s thinking you know everything, <laughs> right? So for me, it was like, okay, I know that at 23, I don't know much about anything. So let me take the little bit that I do know and grow it and expand it. And so when I began to coach, like when I got my first head coaching job, you know, I was uh, 30 years old. I mean, so I was, I was at least five years younger, at least five years younger than the youngest, second youngest head coach in this Houston area. 
and I was at least 15 years younger than the youngest uh, athletic director. And so like that, again, like going back to all those stories we talked about from my childhood, I had this, not insecurity, but like this piercing honesty of that guy across the field has been coaching longer than I've been alive. So for me to think that I'm the hot shot because I'm young and they gave me this job uh, and I can just come and out scheme or out personnel or, you know, or beat this guy outright, like, no, you've got to approach this with pious and with humility. And so you, you can, what you can do is you can't outbeat a guy who has 20 more years of experience, but you can certainly outlearn him if he stopped learning. And so I just became just a deep, deep master of the game. And I, I was very blessed. I shared with you, you know, the time when I was in the room with, you know, some of my mentor coaches. One of my mentor coaches, his name is Ray Seals. Uh, there's a high school here in Houston called Madison High School. And, you know, he was a head coach there for a, a number of years. Um, he's in, you know, he's a Texas High School Coaches Hall of Fame. I think he was a 2013 NFL Coach of the Year. And so that award is given out um from nfl guys who vote on their like high school and, and you know their, their college coaches so he had so many guys in the nfl or so many guys that he had impacted that he was the consensus coach of the year in, you know i think 2013 maybe 2012 or something but um the point i'm making is like you know he we had come across paths he actually gave me my very first coaching job and i'm one of those guys i i anchor to relationships like relationships make the world go round. And so I just, I spent every waking hour that I could, every waking hour that I could and not be a, a burden to him, just soaking and learning and listening. And he would talk about these schemes and, you know, as a point of reference, he, he ran the run and shoot offense, which, you know, the Oilers kind of made famous. He ran it to such a perfection that he would have these, you know, these books and books of deviations of scheme that, he would, you know, from 85 to 93, this is how we ran the, the run and shoot. All the same, you know, all the same offensive scheme, but just different deviations of it. And, and as much as, as I could comprehend, I would just sit and learn. And so to answer your question, you know, yeah, you've got a couple of years coaching under your belt. Um, but, you know, you're coaching against a guy who's twice as old as you and, you know, three times more successful per se, the only way that I can bring some equity to the table is to outlearn that guy. And that's, that's something that I've just, I've always been just an avid ferocious learner, no matter what part of my life. You mentioned like the age difference or the amount of experience some people have with my industry that I'm in. There's a lot of people that have been working at the company as long as I've been alive. So I kind of have to understand how they do things, but kind of tweak it in a way where I can still utilize what I do. And because I come from a different generation and I've noticed that sometimes it's hard for managers to figure out a game plan with the different ages, but you kind of have to think in your mind, I just got to keep learning. If I have to do it a certain different way, you just have to go out in that way and do it that style. And I'm a person that I'm always trying to learn as much as I can, because I want to be well-rounded in any situation that I have, where I can say, I know how to do it this way. I can use this skill set and all of that. And it kind of helps me. And 
hearing your story in that way, it kind of tells me I got to keep on doing what I'm doing and keep on learning and not stop learning. I think a lot of people think when they come out of college, oh, I know everything because I read a textbook. I got A's on everything. But then it's like when you get out in the real world, it's a totally different atmosphere in a way. Yeah, you know, I think that, I think a lot of what you said is true. And I think that the biggest mistake, and it's easy to like rail, I'm a big advocate of the education, you know, space. And I think it's easy to rail on like formal education is broken. Like, yes, it's broken, but you're in it. So you might as well make the most of it, right? And so the idea that, you know, college or university is about learning skill is only partially true. So I believe, so I, I t- I'll tell any college or high school kid, you know, high school or sub-college, it's 100% about learning things for sure. Yeah. College is like 30% learning things and 70% learning how to learn, right? And so understanding that, you know, the way that you prepare for tests, you know, challenge, you know, depending on your industry, obviously, but the really are more about understanding your learning style, understanding that, you know, your professor may teach a class Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and based on your learning style, you may take that class on Monday, it may be in your best interest to sit in that other class on Wednesday and, you know, and take notes. So, you know, as a learning style, you may decompress in their class on Monday, just unpack and receive the stuff that's being taught and then sit in that exact same class, different section. So it's like not your course, but same class, sit in the class on Wednesday and just take notes and then sit in class on Friday and challenge everything that you think you know based upon these previous two right so it's like there's no there's no course for that and that's that's a bit of how i was able to learn especially like classes that were like more challenging to me um like the hard science classes like you know i don't need you to like break it down further than how you broke it down i need to just hear it again so i can have like comprehension and then once i have the comprehension then let me go have some time to reflect and question and challenge as you should, you know, what you, not necessarily what's being taught, but your level of understanding of it. And then let me come back on Friday. Um, you know, again, this is all sweat equity, right? So, I mean, yeah. you're not getting any extra points for this. This is what I have to do to make sure I pass this class in addition to my season, if you're in sport or off season or whatever. Right. But it's like, by the time I get to class on Friday, I now have, a bit of a chip on my shoulder because I've heard it twice as and I'm a competitive guy, but I've heard it twice as much as my peers on Monday. And I'm at the point now where I know what the professor's about to say. So I can challenge my understanding of it or, you know, decide to buy in or not buy in at this certain point because I have a deeper level of understanding. And so, you know, that you have to learn how to think and you have to learn how to learn during your college years and to your point, you know, that's like that skill set is what you transition to the career example that you just used. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that your dream job was to be a senator because you wanted to make a difference and help people. Would you say looking at a full circle of that when you became an entrepreneur, you wanted to use those same ideas of becoming a senator into what you do today? 
Yeah, you know, I think uh, there, I don't know that there was a term for it, but you know, th there's two things that when it comes to business, um, I think make me stand apart. And the first thing is, you know, I, I very much am a social entrepreneur. And so um, my sports construction company, Texas Athletics Construction, we build, you know, athletic surfaces, football fields, basketball courts, whatever. But we do it with a philanthropic um, intention from the beginning. And so we'll partner with the nonprofit and, you know, based upon the completion of a project, you know, a, a large amount of revenue from that project will be earmarked for that nonprofit. And so we'll partner with that nonprofit to go do the community work where, you know, so many places in the corporate setting say, okay, we've got 50,000 bucks sitting around, you know, I'd rather give it away in the community than pay it in taxes. Let me go find somewhere to go, let's say dump this money, but like go dump this money. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing is, you know, I very much am a social entrepreneur. And I think that part of me was derived from the desire to give, you know, that kind of senator thing. The second thing is, Alex, I love, I love, love, love the disruption model. And so, you know, for your listeners who aren't familiar, the disruption model, in a nutshell, if I were to describe it, is uh, Tom Shoes is a great example, right? So um, I've got a pair of shoes here, want to sell for a base price, let's call it 20 bucks, right? But for every pair of shoes that we sell, you know, we're going to give away a pair to an underserved pocket. So not only is that social entrepreneurship, but there's also the disruption model. Now, where the disruption model comes in is, you know, business is, is typically all about commerce and transaction and making money. But what the disruption model, you know, where it goes into effect is I'm going to take a relatively analog business system and find a way to turn it upside down. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's what I did with my construction company. And while it certainly was not the intent, what it did was it gave us an amazing, unique selling proposition, a value proposition. And so, you know, we started in the residential space. And so I'd, you know, go out and, and, and have an appointment with a client and we'd look at their, you know, backyard and kind of mark it off and everything. And, you know, you kind of finish up and say, okay, well, this is, you know, kind of based upon what we see, you know, roughly $25,000 for this project. Um, but I tell you what, uh, if, if you're willing to write this nonprofit a $3,000 check, I'll sell this to you for $22,000. And, you know, it wasn't intended to be hokey. Again, it was like my way of, you know, funding the philanthropic endeavors I was doing. But what it truly is from a business perspective is a unique value proposition. So the guy who comes behind me, you know, quotes the same thing and the you know, specs are the same. And so as that person sitting at their dining room table making a choice, they can go with this guy who's going to build them a court and then put 25,000 bucks in his pocket or whatever the difference is in margin. Or, you know, this guy who maybe is going to give up some of his margin, but he's actually going to go do some good with, you know, with the resources I'm going to award him to his project. And, you know, that, that you know, the social entrepreneurship plus the disruption model has opened so many doors. Um, and that's just from a feel-good tug, right? Because everybody that you partner with, you know, not everyone makes emotional decisions or makes, you know, decisions based upon the good of everybody else. But what it does do is open people's eyes to there is more than one way to do to do business and, and to do things. Was that your biggest strategy going into creating that company was how do I stand out in a way and you kind of knew that this wasn't something that was being done? 
Yeah, so, so that so that I started that company in the Lenten season of 2017, and I'm a, I'm a Christian, and and I, I definitely enjoyed the Lenten season, and it's you know a season of reflection, it's a season of spiritual closeness, it's a season of um, it's a challenging season, right? Because if you're making a sacrament that's a sacrifice, you're you know you're hungry, you're tired, you're not at your full, but you're always kind of leaning on God, like. I don't think I'm making a good choice. So let me kind of lean on you and, and like provide for me. And I was, was walking, I was taking the call in my front yard and I just remember getting off the call and it was like, okay, where are you? Like you're doing okay in business. You're providing all that kind of stuff, but you're, you're, that's not the only thing you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to also be giving and serving and leading. And so I was kind of, you know, convicted with this like what's the next step mm-hmm. and you, you know like we talked about earlier you kind of look back in the inventory and say okay well what you got so I know sports construction I know how to sell it I know how to build it I know how to assemble team them how you know to execute it and I also know at the time I had started my first uh, community program as a turkey drive um, and I also knew that I had kind of going back to the story I shared with you like leaving out of you know, that bad community from a young age, I knew that I had an obligation. Like I know that the only reason that I, that the doors were open to me was because, you know, my, my family moved the same kid in the same situation in the other neighborhood would not be afforded a fifth of the opportunities that I had. So I, I have an obligation to, to manufacture or to create some opportunities for the kids or families who need those same opportunities. The kids who, who live in underserved and underpocketed families who live in these areas aren't any better or any worse, right? I mean, they're, the, they're, they're brilliant minds, they're beautiful families, wholesome families and under every single roof. It doesn't matter where that roof is or you know how well that roof is put together. And so you know, I did always have this burden of I need to give back and I need to serve. And so that, that's, that's the origin of the story of why I started the company. And, um, you know, the outcome of it was, was un, um, unequal in a positive way, unequal success. And I, I say that, you know, I'm not even comfortable really saying that. Right. So it's like, I'm not saying that I'm successful. I'm not saying that I made it, but you know, that company, is still alive, thriving, doing great work, and the doors have been open to that company for even you know. So from there, um, I started in residential, and then within like a year, year and a half, I was awarded my first commercial job. And typically, you know, you're you're in the business five or ten years before you you can even sniff getting a commercial job or a government job, mm-hmm. um, a government contract, and so. Um, you know, again, you, you think about pulling at heartstrings and doing things for the right reason. Well, that may work if you're sitting at someone's, you know, dinner table. When you're being procured for a government contract, they don't care what, you know, what you're doing with the money. They want to know, can you get the work done at a, at a value price? And, you know, do you have your ducks lined up? And so, you know, that's where, you know, your, your character comes in because you're not partnering with a resident. I'm not saying Alex cut this check for, you know, for this nonprofit the whole check's being handed to me. So now I've got to go cut this check. And so you really, your character gets tested. And so, you know, I'm saying all that to say that, you know, being extremely true to who I am and learning in my failures 
um, sitting in my unknown moments, you know, seeking advice and counsel, being true to my faith is what launched Texas Athletics. And, you know, the work that we do gives me purpose and mission way more than any tangible, you know, gift or trinket. The philanthropy side, I enjoy listening to your story about because that was a huge thing for me um, growing up in college. I was a philanthropy chair for my fraternity for a few years and no one was able to take on the role and actually do something with it. And I thought, I'm going to try this out. I want to see what I can do with it. And I was able to do huge things, find help um, patients with ALS, because that was what we were raising money for. And just having that impact in those people's lives. Um, it wasn't it wasn't about the whole um, publicity or being a picture on the Facebook page. It was all about how can I make a difference into that person's life for the, even the short amount of time I'm there because we want to do great for other people. And how you're talking about um, testing your character, it kind of showed a lot of people from people in my fraternity, their characters didn't match up with what I did, but the people that were close and cared about the passion I had, they wanted to come with me on that journey and go there and be a part of it. And even now today, even past college, I still have that same philosophy in my mind where anytime my company has an opportunity, I'm like the first one that signs up because I enjoy it. If I, I know I can take hours out of my day to go and help someone because it means so much to them. And I, I enjoy it. I love listening to your story because it shows that you have a great heart and a passion for what you're doing. No, thank you. And, and that means a lot to me. And I think that one of the things you kind of touched upon is the attention it brings. And, you know, I, I have this like weird dichotomy to me. Like I'm a very extroverted person, but I am like highly introverted. Right. So, you know, when the spotlight's on me, it's like, no, not me the company right so it's like it's not that i'm doing so good bring awareness to the company so we can be awarded more contracts so we can do, go you know do more good i don't i mean i can tell my story and share my testimony but i have no problem doing that but it's like you know don't pat me on the back look at i'd rather raise the company's profile than my profile because the company is what's going to go out there and create you know the opportunity for us to actually go back and do the work and so you know, it, it took me a while to figure that out. And, you know, just, I, I, it took me, it took me a while to figure that out. That's what I'll say is, you know, I would decline some interviews and there'd be opportunities for press. And it's like, yeah, it's not about me, but then you, you got to kind of bunch of big boy pants on. It's like, well, okay, I'll tell the story, but make sure the story is about the organization. Don't make it about me. Um, and I think that that's, again, like just being true to who you are and, you know, everybody has their kind of their glitches and what makes us all unique. But, you know, I, mean, I think ultimately there does come this uh, this burden of the right. There's a split of like the brand and the person. And sometimes the person has to kind of walk over the line. It's like, OK, fine. Like, I'll I'll tell my story. I'll talk. I'll do this thing. But, you know, like, don't don't value me. Right. So I, I wrote I wrote my first book um last year called alpha redefined and it's about um servant leadership i mean all my life i've been called the alphas like you know you're strappy you get girls all that kind of stuff and you know for me kind of going back to what i just said like it's you know i don't care about that <laughs> you know what i'm saying like that's not important to me and 
it, it, you know, the idea is so many times, especially today, you know, as politicized as every, I mean, like literally like hot dogs, burgers are politicized. You know what I'm saying? Like, like everything we do now is like politicized. And so the idea is like, don't fall in love with the man because the man is always going to disappoint you, right? He's a man, right? The idea is fall in love with the man's values and, and ethics and morals because that's what he'll lean on. And so the idea of the, you know, the perfect politician or the celebrity couple and the guy does something wrong. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, he's, he or she is going to make a mistake. That's all we do is make mistakes. But, you know, the road back to discovery, the road back to reclaiming who they are, that's where they display their character. Um, and I think that's the part kind of going back to, you know, philanthropy and marrying into business. You know, it, it's not about me. I'm going to do something goofy. I'm going to misspell an email. I'm going to say, so, you know, something's going to be taken out of context. Like, yeah, don't, don't fall in love with me. You know, fall in love with the values and the morals because at the end of the day, like, that's what's going to shine through. So talk about this e-course that you came out with. What was the mission about making it? So it's funny. So I, the vision came at the on the heels of my promo tour for my, my book. So I did a six-city tour last fall into winter. And, you know, you, you read a portion of the book, you do your, you know, your book signing and, you know, kind of open up for questions. And, and you know, most of the questions are, you know, it's the same 50 questions for the most part, everywhere you go, kind of common questions. But the question that always kind of like caught me off guard was, you know, how are you doing all this, right? So like you're speaking, you're doing work with NFL clubs, you're doing work with nonprofits, you're in the community, you, you know, you, like, how are you, how do you do all this stuff? And, you know, my answer was, was always the same. Like I win the first quarter of my day. I mean, I get up, I have, you know, a pretty consistent protocol. Um, I wake up at four o'clock and I, you know, I spend my time with God and um, I journal. I just kind of begin to go through, like, you know, you're trying to answer this question, mm -hmm. but then the more you answer the same question, it's like, wait a minute, this framework that I've, you know, established, I won't say I created it, but like the framework that I've established um, can help people, right? So what I hear people saying is, I need help capitalizing and leveraging and using maybe some of the principles that you use, you know, can you help me? And so I took that back into my business and, you know, began to, you know, kind of add that into my niche of my consultancy work. And, you know, even that is, is, is almost like a, when you see, you know, a loose dog and you try to help it and you pick your head up and it's like, Oh crap, it's a whole litter. <laughs> it was like, what do I do with all these dogs? I can't. Right. And so, the idea was like, okay, there's an opportunity here for me to help people. There's a framework that I've established. And the coolest part, Alex, is because I spent the time in researching and doing interviews for the book, I had this pool of interviews that I, I'd interviewed like 30 people and 12 of them were like either millionaires, self-made, you know, like just like businessmen, entrepreneurs, like really had it going on. And you begin to go through the transcripts of these interviews, and it's almost like, like a like a like a validation by like two things aligning, right? So it's like these are my practices that I established myself. But then when I extract all these interviews, all these guys are doing like very similar to the same thing. And so it's like 
I can not only add to mine and enhance it, but it is like this validation of, yeah, like you're onto something, like, you know, keep it up. So long story short, um, beginning of the year, I'm like, you know what, like, I need to be able to help as many people as I can, but I physically can't be everywhere at once. There's only so many Zoom calls I can take or appointments or, or whatever. So I began to map out just, you know, creating a, a online course. And ironically enough, um, uh, the day that COVID hit, they call it Black Friday here in Houston, like the day that the city shut down was, I think it was like uh, March 13th, it was a Friday. But so that was the day that I was set to um, go to a studio to record. And so I actually had to like film everything like here in my house and edit and everything. But what I'm getting to is, you know, being true to who I am, to your point earlier, actually kind of got me ahead of the curve of this new digital thing, this new Zoom thing, this new virtual thing. And so, you know, here I am with this, I think, really cool resource that I'm really excited about getting into people's hands um, because I feel like they need it and it's important. Now, the one thing I will add to that is uh, as I began to wrap up the course, there was this going back into the time thing for me and just like the anxiety, there was this uh, pressure of making things cost affordable. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you kind of look back at this robust, it's like four hours worth of like instruction. And, you know, it, it, it's a it's it's a curriculum written thing It's pedagogy, which means like it's taught to it's written in an instructional format. And so you look back and it's like, OK, cool. Like I've created an amazing product. I can't wait to get it in people's hands. But people are hurting right now. Right. So the last thing I want is to is to create something meant to help people. But you know, cost is a barrier. And so I actually have like our, our premier kind of primary course. Then I have like two subsects of it that are like a lower, more cost affordable. So it's like wherever you are in your journey, wherever you are in your financial situation, like we've got a resource for you. Like the last thing I want is for someone to want to get better and they can't because I'm, 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 I believe that you know, when you create, when you work, when you do art, you're doing it for the ecosystem. And so like, this is one of my contributions to the entrepreneur and to the small business ecosystem to make everybody, you know, to make Alex better. Here's this gift or here's this resource for you because I need you to do what you do better because at some point I'm going to need to lean on what you have to give. So you talked about you're going on this podcast tour. What's the biggest thing that you're wanting to promote or teach people about the course that you created? You know, the biggest thing I'd say is, um, you know, so first off, understanding that champions are made in the off season. And, you know, we talked about sports quite a bit and kind of as you reference, it's like sometimes we get away from physically being in sport or physically being in, in competition and we forget that, you know, Manny Pacquiao doesn't win the belt when the bell rings. Manny Pacquiao wins the belt those six weeks in training or those nine weeks in camp, right? So the idea that you're going to get to your desk at whatever time and just have a phenomenal A-plus day is a crapshoot. Like, like, life doesn't work like that. So if you can hedge and leverage the four hours before you get to your day, you can create so much momentum that by the time you get to your desk, you know, you're actually having some type of impact and you've got, you're rolling downhill already at, you know, in the football mm -hmm. terms, you're already running downhill, you know, while your competitor, while your peers getting their first cup of coffee, going through Instagram, 
you're, you're so focused in the zone that you've already leveraged your success for the day. And so I guess uh, one of the things I learned in coaching is, you know, you can manufacture a win, right? And so some of it is setting benchmarks, some of it is setting goals, but some of it is keeping your eye on the big prize. And so, you know, if a division championship is your goal, then, you know, yes, you need to win games to achieve that. But, you know, losing a game doesn't take you out of eligibility of achieving your goal. And so, you know, to answer your question, you know, the biggest thing I want people to take away is uh, you can have, you can create a system for you to have an amazing first quarter of your day that catapults your entire day. So what does the future look like for you professionally and personally? What are you wanting to accomplish in the next few years? Um, that's interesting. So I, I really like, um, I'm a curious person. I really like solving big problems. And so there are a handful of big problems I want to solve. Um, selfishly, uh, I think that, and it hurts me to even say this, right? But I think that Texas athletics, youth at like high school UIL, so, so high school athletics is very good, but it's not great anymore. And um, you look at states like California, you look at states like Florida, Colorado has a very interesting format. I want like selfishly for um, Texas athletics to be dominant without a question. And I'm, I'm interested to get my hands in trying to fix that. You know, but there are also like more universal problems that I, I like to be able to fix. One of them, I, uh, I did some work with the Clinton Foundation some years ago in eradicating sports deserts. And so a sports desert is defined like a food desert, right? So X amount of square miles where a kid can't either play sport for free or reduce costs or some type of like economic, where again, where like cost or access is a barrier. Mm -hmm. You know, how do we eradicate places? And so again, you think about we grew up, like you grew up hearing bicycles and kids moving outside and balls dribbling and, you know, there's balls falling in your backyard, right? I mean, that those things don't happen because, you know, honestly, adults have taken play away from kids, right? So like for a kid to play, they got to sign up for a league, there's got to be structure, you know, it has to be indoors, it has to be air conditioned. Like there are fewer places for kids to play. And so how do we, you know, going back to the very beginning of this conversation, how do we teach, how do we allow sports to teach the youth the same way that they taught us if we continue to create barriers for kids to play? And so, you know, I'm just curious to like try to figure out how to solve really big problems like that. You talked about um, helping with youth athletics and high school athletics and all that. I know there's been some TV shows or movies, documentaries that talk about Texas sports. Would that be hurting what's going on or is it not telling everything that's really happening? Because there's like the shows like, the one show that I remember is Friday Night Tykes, I think where it talks about youth athletics, but then when that show was happening and then we're all seeing what's going on, then it starts a media storm and it kind of gets people thinking, is it safe, is it not? How are the coaches being like this? Do you think the media has an effect on why it's not where it should be today? Yes, that's a really good question. So what I'd say is, um, 
attention. I, I think that there are in, in our society, there are institutions, right? So um, the government institution, the banking institution, financial faith institutions, education, right? In Texas, athletics is an institution. Yes. Um, I also believe that when institutions become monetized, that it it bottoms out the values and the ethics, right? So what I mean by that is this, um, you know, the educational institution in our country for years um, had a relatively low cost barrier of entry, right? So it's like, if you pass these tests, if you are able to have success at this school, then we're gonna make it cost effective for you to be able to go to this school because we need you to make our ecosystem better. Then when you begin to monetize it, it's like, you know what? Everybody can go to school. We're going to make the school $50,000. And so whether you sink or swim, that's on you, but just be sure to cut me my check. Right. And so, you know, to that point, you know, athletics, youth athletics, and again, I define youth as anything under a professional. So NCAA, you know, all these, you know, youth athletics has become monetized to the point to where, you know, yes, I'm glad Friday Night Tykes shone the light on how serious we take football. And if you can walk and if your neck is strong enough to hold a helmet, we're going to give you a helmet and you're going to line up and play, right? But it also brought attention. And this is also the timing of it was when the, when the NFL, college, and high school sports were trying to make amends and come to terms with concussion protocols and, and safety, right? All those, there was all this big, storm all at once well it also began to bring awareness on you know why do we have so you think about it for a second if you've got a seven-year-old nephew and you go to his youth game his basketball game where the basketball court is 84 feet a seven-year-old doesn't play 84 feet a seven-year-old plays a short way right so it's same thing with soccer same thing with hockey so why in the world is a seven-year-old running on a 120-yard football field? Like, that just doesn't make sense, right? And so I think that like most things in our culture, especially in politics right now, sometimes you have to shine a light on things for us to have, uh, for, for there to be the attention to address that needs to be fixed. But more importantly, it also takes courage to begin to try to fix it. And that's one of the cool things that, you know, one of the biggest reasons why I began to do work with uh, USA football is like, hey, you know, this doesn't make common sense, right? So I, I don't, you know, if I'm giving a seven-year-old a standardized test for comprehension, it's not a 90-minute test. This kid can't lock in for 90 minutes. Why would I have, you know, why would I have a 55-yard sideline for a kid, right? So it's like, so what, because what it turns into is, you know, the running so the running game becomes about speed and quickness and not about mobility agility and reading blocks so i don't have to you know go inside bounce and then cut out to make you know to make my cut to, to, to gain yards i just got to get past that tackle and if i'm the fastest back then nobody else is going to beat me well the other side to it is what it, and this is i think the more harmful side is it doesn't teach defense pursuit right all it teaches is if I don't get to, you know, the, that edge first, it's a touchdown, right? Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't teach pursuit angles. It doesn't teach alignment football. It doesn't teach, you know, the responsibilities of maintaining a gap. It just teaches speed. And so, you know, so yes, speed is cool, but, you know, speed only gets you so far. Speed without skill, you know, is a dead end. So to answer your question, 
I mean, I think those are the types of problems that, you know, I am bold enough to try to fix, but not hubris enough to think that I have all the answers. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting because I know it definitely depends on which generation, like some things that it's natural and that's what happened. And I've had friends who are from Texas and they talk about Texas football and how big it is. We see the images of what the stadiums look like for a high school. And it's just amazing because out here it's like, no, we barely can get people in the stands to go watch a high school football game. So it's very interesting because when you mention it, it's like the first thing those shows came to mind and it's kind of like, is it like, what is really the real perception that it's showing in a way? Yeah, so so I live I live in a small town right outside of Houston. It's called Katy. And so, you know, if you're any type of like sports fan, you've heard of like Katy High School football. And, you know, they they have I think eight state championships. They've been ranked, you know, um, you know, uh number one in the in the country by Max Preps a number of years. And you've got like North Shore on the other side of town. But long story short, there's a stadium, like our community stadium holds 17,000 people, <laughs> right? And so, and, and it's packed. I mean, last night um, I was, was grilling in the backyard and you can hear the band at halftime, the light, you know, are lit up. And, you know, so it's like, yes, kind of going back to what I was saying earlier about athletics being an external educational system. If a, if a high school kid can perform in front of 17,000 jeering fans, that kid can be successful at whatever he chooses to do in life. So the final question I'll ask you, for someone that's listening to this interview, what tips or advice would you give them to accomplish their goals, overcome obstacles, and rise to their challenge? Yeah, so the first thing I'd say is um, you have to be unapologetically you, right? And so this entire conversation has really been, you know, Alex and Cam kind of going back and forth about best practices and what we see and the way we see the world. You know, I think you have to understand that um, you can achieve anything you want to. Um, You can also, and this is, I think, the dopest thing about technology and where we are today. Um, You can learn just about anything today. Right. And, and that's not necessarily saying like, excuse me, that's not necessarily going to like YouTube University, like, right. So I mean, there's, there's junk everywhere. But the point I'm making is, you know, there is an art and there is a science to everything. Um, art is subjective. You know, what what you present as art or the art you put on your work is up to your interpretation. But the science of how to do just about anything, that information is available. And that leads me to the second thing is, you know, I think you have to have a ferocious desire to learn with the understanding that, you know, it takes, it takes a lot. You have to learn a lot, right? So you have to be like, you have to have an unquenchable like curiosity about things. Um, And that's not even things that like are deep in your field, right? So I, I was, I've read a book recently or earlier this year called the uh the billion dollar app and you know I'm, I'm not a tech guy i don't i don't plan on like launching an app but it's like you know i don't deal with much math and science on my day-to-day basis so let me just sit and learn and see how far i can get into you know a pretty technical book and and what it becomes is like you know again you can learn anything so yes i had to read it twice <laughs> to, kind of, to kind of make it make sense but it's like, you know, yeah, I'm better. Now. I can take 
the analytical, uh, you know, the one thing I learned from that book was like the power of testing and Swiss testing and A-B testing. And it's like, yes, I can take a component, just a small nugget from that book and take it and add it to my business to take it and add it to my life and make it better. And so the last thing I say is, you know, life, nature, relationships uh, happen in patterns. And the slower you can move and the more observant you can be, you can begin to pick up on life's natural patterns and then to understand, you know, that this thing that happened is another one of those, right? So if you're a guy who maybe you listen to this and you're like, you know, yeah, you know, the work stuff's cool for me and all that, but, you know, I don't understand why I can't maintain long-term dating relationships, right? So the fact of the matter is, you know, most patterns in life are the same. And so if you can understand the patterns, you can understand when there's opportunities to be vulnerable or the opportunity to, you know, stand your ground on the situation or, or an opportunity to, you know, be honest about a situation, whatever the situation may be, there's probably a pattern. If you're not getting the result you want, there's a pattern in there that you have to identify, which goes back to the science thing, right? But there's a pattern you have to identify. Once you identify those patterns, you can literally ride the waves of life. Well, Cameron, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. We all learned so much about your journey and excited to see what the future looks like for you. Hey, Alex, this was a pleasure. Can't wait till we do it again. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember, you can follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms and also make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel as we put the full-length episodes in video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.